Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk about details, the minutia so critical to every engineering project. We also talk about party conversation, catapults, and engineering elves. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 95, Details, October 12th, 2015. So Carmen, do you enjoy dealing with details? Uh, it depends on the details and depends on how, many, how much resources I have to go about fretting the details. <laughs> If I'm solving a technical problem, like, you know, why is the efficiency coming in lower than we expect it to? Sure, I'll sweat those details and, you know, start eliminating variables. If it's, uh, are there any typos left in your data sheet before we uh, release it? <laughs> those details I really find hard to focus on. <laughs> Although they are hmm. equally as important in some ways. Hmm. So it's not the importance of the details, it's how interesting you find the details. Yeah, pretty much. Should hire a copy editor intern. Send me your resumes. <laughs> <laughs> I have no say in the hiring power or control of the budget, but you know, whatever, we'll yeah. wing it. Well, you've you know you've heard that the uh, devil is in the details. It sort of implies that everything sounds good as a big abstract idea, but when you start to uh, just really bore into the problem, then you you discover what the true problems are as you get into the the details. And yes. You know, it's, it seems like engineers, no matter what type of engineer, what field we're in, we have to deal with details. We we often get stuck with the small little minutia that no one else wants to uh, to deal with. And so uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about details. And before we get too deep into that, we wanted to once again put out to our listeners, uh, to the great Engineering Commons Nation. Is that right? Engineering Commons Nation. Does that sound right? Are we branding that now? I don't know. I'm just wondering. I, I, we'll give it a try. That sounds like something a shock jock would say. <laughs> right, does this podcast going in a uh, different direction? Uh, not that I know of, but I, you know, we can try. Uh, anyhow, to the listeners of this podcast, uh, again, our request for uh, suggestions, recommendations for guests and topics. And uh, we have gotten some suggestions for guests and have reached out and just have gotten no response. We're, we're stonewalled with silence. <laughs> right, right. And so what we found is if you, have, if you know someone or, or you can make a personal introduction that works so much better, occasionally we can reach out to someone and they will respond and, and come onto the show. Uh, but we have had a number of guests that have been suggested to us and we've, we've tried to get them on the show and just gotten, you know, just no response. Not, not a, I don't want to do it, but... No response whatsoever. So if you, if, especially if you have a uh, uh, someone that you know and can make a personal introduction, we'd really love it uh, to have additional guests so that we've got a full slate for the upcoming year, which will be 2016. I believe that'll be the, uh, the fourth year of the podcast at that point? That will. We started this in April of 2012, believe it or not. So April, this coming April, will be four years. Wow. We're, we're the old geezers on the podcast block. Practically. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that's true. With the growing popularity of podcasts, it seems that uh, there are more and more all the time, which I enjoy, uh, more things to listen to. But yeah, we've been around for a little bit. 
Yeah, without us, there'd be no cereal. Yeah, we'll compete with their numbers in the the next season. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) After the holiday break. Yeah. But anyways, speaking of details, we're getting off track. (laughs) Uh, Yet again. So – one of the uh, one of our previous guests, uh, James Trevelyan, uh, talked about that one of the jobs of engineers was to reduce uncertainty, and I think that one of the ways we do that is is we're dealing with the small details. You know, when you when you pick a certain uh, uh, component, when you pick a certain bolt, when you p- pick a certain software package, each of these details reduces the uncertainty. It makes a decision that someone else doesn't have to worry about anymore, and so. There are those that treat uncertainty as a purely probabilistic issue. You know, we have a distribution and we have uncertainty within that probability and you can do a numerical analysis to figure out, you know, uh, within this range, what should you do to, uh, you know, to maximize your, your expected outcome. But that's not really the, the part that I'm, I'm interested in discussing in this episode I'm more looking at those things that are a little more nuanced, those things that you can't just boil down to a numerical issue. Do you, do you guys find that you, you run across this a lot, that you have details where it's, 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 uh, it's more a judgment call than a, an actual calculation? Oh, yeah, definitely. As I alluded to a little bit in the introduction, um, the efficiency of switching regulators is very hard to you know get the bench to match up with the simulations. Designers mm-hmm. will hand me an estimate for, uh, you know, the loss through the FETs and, you know, the package and everything. But uh, once you put it on the, the bench, you're worried about PCB resistance and ductor losses. And, you know, you can kind of just take the inductor out of the equation by measuring uh, right at the IC. But, you know, if, it, if it's still coming in lower, then you got to start eliminating PCB resistance, which is difficult. You have to know ahead of time that you're going to have that problem so you can take board layout precautions and, you know, add test hooks. And then um, because the IC is kind of a black box, you know, I have access to certain test modes that I can use to get signals out and probe. Um, just, it's really hard to figure out any sort of parasitic device losses. Um, you know, if there's a, a diode somewhere on the chip that's being switched on that shouldn't be because of phase node ringing, um, which is getting very technical here. But uh Mm-hmm. You know, try, trying to track that stuff down or the details that can kill you. And, you know, if there's enough of those little details to pile up, that, you know, that could make or break whether or not you win the socket. <laughs> right. I was thinking uh, <clears throat> earlier today I had the RTFM moment where I burned nine hours and didn't read the one little part of the manual <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that told me once I put a certain device into – IO mode, it uh, overrode a series of uh, registers that, you know, were pretty crucial to to getting my device (laughs) to function. Yeah. And, yeah, you you can set breakpoints all over your, you know, all over your firmware going, "Eh, you know, it's worked for about a year now. Why did it stop (laughs) working for my test fixture? Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. That's my. That's more my experience with details. It's usually things that either I neglect or overlook. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of neglect, documentation is another detail that I uh, often struggle with. I, I have gotten better, but as I look back at like you know the very first chips I did, um, 
you know, I'll just find like a random folder in the main project folder of scope shots with no context. And I'm like, what the hell was I doing here? <laughs> you know, some report that has scope shots. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I wanted to take these measurements. But what was this parameter that I need to know to recreate them? And uh, I can't find it and I have to go figure it out again myself. And, you know, that as I go back and, you know, forward in time and see the newer chips, I've gotten better. So I'm working on it. But Sweating the documentation details is, uh, you know, something that's easy to overlook in the heat of the moment. Sure. I often find, too, that you're you're solving, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, design an analog circuit or a digital circuit. And, you know, you're thinking about this as uh, about the problem purely as making a functional device, not a functional device in, say, a high EMI environment. Mm-hmm. And you'll design something insane, or I have designed things that were insanely complex. And then, you know, as soon as you put it in the anechoic chamber, you realize, ooh, this is a horrible idea. And it was very, I've been in those situations where it's very difficult to anticipate problems that are beyond kind of the first order of getting something working, getting something to fit, and getting something that costs okay. There's usually three or four other tertiary problems that uh, go beyond that. Mm-hmm. I guess you're you're hitting something that you know I think about a lot, isn't that? Is when you sit around and sort of develop a new idea, and people are talking, you know, big concepts, uh, big ideas. Then that everything sounds great and it's rosy, and it's not until you really sort of dig into the problem and you start trying to sort out these details that you realize you know, what a big problem you're trying to tackle and how difficult it's really going to be. Well, I mean, let's be totally honest. You usually don't know that until you build it the first time. <laughs> exactly. All, and all the all the horrible ones are the ones that show up, not just after you build it the first time too, after you try to put it into production. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And that's the reason for, as you may recall from our first episode, the pi multiplier. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the... You know, that's the reason I, so I actually found when I was, I was doing a little research for this show that in the software world, they have a, uh, a chart called the cone of uncertainty <laughs> and the cone of uncertainty talked about how many details were unknown at the beginning. And as you went along through the software project, you'd make decisions and, and your uncertainty would reduce. And they had the uncertainty at the beginning in terms of budget and time being up to four times which I thought was pretty close to my pi multiplier. So other uh, support for, for my uh, off-the-cuff estimator. Yeah. Hey, Jeff, how do details um, affect your teaching career? I mean, you know, do you lay awake at night wondering if you got these homework solutions set uh, correct that you're going to send out to the students or, you know, you made that test question a little too hard? Absolutely. As with anything, it, you, always, you always do your best and you try to get things right. Uh, but there have certainly been cases where I'm, uh, I don't know if it keeps me awake at night, but when I get to bed, I'm pretty <laughs> tired. I usually sleep, go to sleep pretty quickly. But it's certainly the case where during the course of the day or on the drive up to campus or whatever, it's like, uh, did I really check that? Or or I'll suddenly realize that there was a, a mistake or an error and uh, that I, I need to make a change in the homework or make a change to the slides, that kind of thing. Yeah, I I worry about it. I mean, it's, uh, again, it's not going to result in, in a, uh, you know, someone being 
harmed physically by that, but I hate to think that any of the students that I'm teaching are being taught something that's incorrect or they're, they're suffering as I, you know, we all have where there's a typo in the notes or a typo in the book and you spend an hour, you know, going through it, going, this doesn't make no sense. makes no sense. Why did they do this? And then you go and you ask the instructor and they go, oh, it's a typo in the book. Don't worry about it. Shudder remembering those days. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate to think that I caused anybody to waste time. And, and I'm sorry, oh, yeah. I, I, there's no way you can avoid it, right? You try anything, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make errors. Just by virtue of trying, you will be involved somehow in, in, in some level of failure. But I, I really do try to, uh, to make sure I've got the details right. Mm-hmm. So compared to the uh, the corporate world, you know, if Brian or I start worrying about the details, um, you know, we can call a design review, we can call a, a meeting, a project meeting with everybody on the, the team. Mm-hmm. Do you do you lean on your TAs to double check you or other faculty members? Do you have those options? Well, the course I'm teaching right now, we have uh, four instructors. There are 300 and I think eight students in the course, and so, uh, for instance, I have 88 students in my section. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, we if there's a homework assignment or something, we'll pass it around to the other instructors and, and get their input on it. <laughs> uh, but I've, I've taught classes as well where there were no TAs, there were no graders, there, you know, it was just me. And um, mm-hmm. you do the best you can. And, and quite honestly, the, the, uh, the problem is that to actually sit down and work through any homework assignment, I, so I will work up a homework problem and and give the solution and, and have the instructors look at the solution. But it's like decoding or debugging software. You know, it looks good at first glance and it's not unless you really get in there and go line by line and, you know, instruction by instruction yeah. and calculation by calculation that you, you catch the, you know, the, uh, you know, the revert, the missing sign or the, uh, you know, the limits that are, are incorrect or something. And so you do the best you can and uh, try to, double check yourself. I, I will say that when I'm when coming up with examples for class or homework problems, a lot of times I'm going back to, you know, I'm plotting something out in MATLAB or I'm, I'm doing something in Mathematica to make sure that I've got the integral correct or that I've got the, uh, the plot correct, that kind of thing. Because there's nothing worse than to spend lots of time on a problem again and discover that there are some detail that you didn't catch that makes the entire thing basically null and, and void. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. I think everyone when they're going through school has at least one problem they do that because of a mistake or a typo, there is actual no solution and you grind your <laughs> you grind your gears on it for about three hours and then go, you know, beg the prof, please tell me there's no solution to this. Yeah. Oh, similar story, but not not quite due to a typo or anything. When I was taking my semiconductor physics course in grad school you know, you're you're doing all these, you know, wave equations and stuff and you're uh you're simplifying all this algebra and you know, you'd get completely stuck and the math is just a mess and you're up to your elbows trying to keep track of sign differences and you know, which terms cancel and you're totally lost and you go to the instructor and you know, he <laughs> he would like you look at your work and go, Oh, the problem is, you know, right here on step six or whatever. You guys multiplied by uh X over X to simplify and reduce, but really you multiply by the wrong value of one. If you do like X plus one over X plus one, you'll see all this other stuff cancels <laughs> out and becomes a lot easier. <laughs> and it was just, you know, one of those little details that he knew from a whole career of, you know, working in fab houses and everything. And we were still learning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there, there are certainly uh, details in technique, right? 
It doesn't have to be just details and calculations. A lot of times it's knowing it's knowing what order to do things or or to do things in a, in a manner that doesn't seem uh, natural, doesn't seem intuitively obvious, but you just happen to have learned that it works. Yeah. Yeah, I'm learning that right now, too, outside of work, uh, building a coffee table for uh, my bonus room. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I know the steps from reading things online and, you know, generally being around tools all my life, but I've never actually done a serious woodworking project. And, okay. you know, I didn't know there was a conditioner you could put on the wood to make it accept stain better until after I started staining, which at that point <laughs> is too late. <laughs> So little details like that get me or, uh, you know, details on how to properly work a, a jigsaw or something to get a better arc cut out of some wood and, you know, things like that. Yeah. There's only so much YouTube can teach you before you actually have to get out and do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, experience is the best teacher, right? Agreed. Yeah. So so what do you think are, are – so we as engineers have to deal with a lot of details. So did we get into engineering because we like details and we knew what we were getting into? Or did we get into engineering and we just learned to put up with details because that's what we had to do to be an engineer? Or do you stay an engineer because you can tolerate constantly being <laughs> wrong about things? <laughs> uh, well, that could be. but So I don't know about – I'd be interested in your opinion. Just my sense is there's an awful lot of engineering that is nothing but grinding through the details and, grind, and details that no one else wants. That is my silicon validation plan. <laughs> not not that nobody wants it because it's good to know, you know, this circuit always works. But uh, unless you're going to a whole new process node or you're doing something out of the left field, a lot of it is reusing some of the same circuit blocks mm-hmm. uh, as previous chips. And they do break in interesting ways. But, uh, you know, in, in, in general, you're just kind of grinding through to prove that they didn't break. <laughs> yeah. So if I were if I were a lawyer – then there would mm-hmm. have to be legal briefs that I'd have to be examining, and there would be a lot of grinding through that stuff and looking up legal prep, uh, precedents. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that's probably the same in patents, it, too, yeah, right? And if I were an accountant, I'd have to spend hours looking at, at numbers and stuff. Is it? Is every job have details? Am I just being, am I being too dramatic about the details that engineers have to deal with? Is there any difference in what we do from what other professions do, or is it just the, the topic? Yeah, well, one thing I could say that – Engineers also typically lack a lot of the formalisms that are used to in other professions to deal with uh, a huge number of details. Like if you think about like a pilot's uh, pre-flight checklist, a lot, there's a lot that's done there. Mm-hmm. Or if you've ever seen a doctor going into surgery and they, uh, the way tools and um, – the procedures that must be done before, you know, you cut somebody open, it's all very regimented. And I think engineers are not regimented at all. Yeah. The typical like persona of the engineer is like, you know, the wacky evil mad scientist inventor, you know, just kind of flying by the seat of his pants. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's, I think that's often an accurate description. (laughs) I think we try to be disciplined and I think, but at the same time, if you compare it to other professions, I think often we're pretty much gunslingers hmm. and not a good way. I mean, and I've worked in places where that's been recognized and they try to try to implement uh, more regimented problem solving and design techniques. And 
it all feels very unnatural and it's often mocked heavily by the engineering community. Yeah. Yeah. No individual engineers is the problem. It's all those other schmucks you're working with. Well, uh, we're all part of the problem. Oh, yeah, exactly. I, yeah. That was you know, a little tongue in cheek. Mm. But I mean, if you if you look at that, I, I'm I'm trying to I can't think of any of the names off the top of my head. I'm sure we've all experienced them. But like, as soon as management gets involved in solving a problem, you know, let's do the five whys or um, <laughs> you know all of these other kind of yeah yeah. Then you get stop trying to tell me how to do my job. It, it seems very forced and very in, inflexible. It, it seems like a poor way to do problem solving but i think if we actually stepped back and looked at you know how other professions handle those type of complexities it's probably closer to that Mm. you know the pilot isn't thinking about each step of the or i shouldn't say isn't having to recall all the things required to do a pre-flight to get an a320 in the air you know they don't wing it Mm -hmm. (laughs) poor pun (laughs) So do you think that it's just because engineers are such a creative type, they hate going through something that seems regimented? I mean, is there such a joy in discovering something on your own that you the joy is ruined if somebody says, well, let's go through the five steps, you know, the five whys or whatever? Does that does that ruin all the joy of discovering it on your own? Um, I don't know. From, from my point of view, it's, it's a very slow way to work. Mm-hmm. A predictable way to work, but a very slow way to work. Um, I don't know, Carmen, if you have any thoughts on it or if you've experienced it. I don't know. I never really had a a regimented, uh, you know, way put forth that I have to go about solving my problems. Right. But Carmen went on the, the, the equipment that you work on, the designs you're dealing with, you're doing something that is somewhat different from day to day, but yeah, but the same sort of ideas, I mean, same sort of things are getting done. So if somebody came to you and said, here's a checklist and here's what we want you to do every day, you know, we want you to, we want you to, you know, answer, I'm making up stuff here. We want you to answer all your email to customers first. Then we want you to spend 30 minutes working on improving the performance of the product. And then we want you to spend another 15 minutes writing a memo to management about what you're working on today. And then we want you to spend you know, basically a checklist of everything you had to do during the day. Do you not at that point feel like, uh, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a creative problem solver. I'm just, a, I'm just filling out rote paperwork, doing what someone else has told me to do. Oh yeah. At that point it would become micromanagement, but, um, I don't know. There's, there's certain aspects and maybe it's up to me to step up to the plate, but, uh, you know, just if you're going to take these sort of measurements, like do a quick one, two page write up on, how to set up your bench, what to look for, you know, make sure the scope's got these settings because there's nothing worse than, uh, you know, taking a whole bunch of scope shots for an hour, then looking and seeing that you uh, forgot to turn the bandwidth limiting off. So everything you really wanted to see is hidden by the filters of the scope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in certain scenarios, yeah, a checklist would be very nice to um, nice to have. So you're not you're not philosophically opposed to a checklist. No, if it's applied in the right condition, you know, in terms of taking these measurements or whatever, if it's, you know, you will come in at eight o'clock and, you know, you have until eight ten to get your coffee and sit down at your desk and from eight ten to eight forty is email time. Yeah, then I would be getting opposed <laughs> to, you know, that sort of problem solving because, 
you know, some emails require me to write a book, uh, you know, explaining certain technical details. Other emails are just, yeah, here's your data sheet. And to try and squeeze that into a time block is, you know, it's it's too fluid to tr- properly regiment in my idea, in my opinion. Okay. It's a little one, two, three, let's innovate. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, let's take something that requires a, a, at least some level of inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. And luck. Like you need the serendipity of, you know, it's difficult to do a binary search on hardware. Yeah. Or if mm-hmm. you have a software problem that is, you know, an interrupt randomly firing when you didn't expect it. Um, Working your way through that isn't as simple as doing a binary search. Yeah. Yeah. And and some days I'm inundated with email and it seems like that's all I'm doing. And on other days, you know, I knock on wood, the FAs are happy and <laughs> nothing nothing comes across my mm-hmm. desk. But And I would also say it, it, the more regimented, the less tolerant there is to – less tolerance to going kind of uh, wherever the data takes you. So you run an experiment that looks at a particular part, you know, uh, tests a hypothesis. And, you know, there there are certain documentation and kind of closed-loop checking going back to the group, going back to the hive mind with respect to your results. Whereas if you're alone, you could say, well, that didn't work. I didn't see what I wanted. But I saw something interesting during this first part of – the measurement. Let's move my leads over here and rerun this whole test again and see what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you might do that six, seven, eight iterations. Whereas if you were doing a very firm, formalized system, you may never, you know, don't test what I didn't tell you to test. Yeah. So, so uh, intuition plays into this. You can't, uh, you can't regiment what you don't know. Is that the, is that what you're saying? Oh yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's an attempt to make what is inherently unpredictable predictable. Yeah. But just to play devil's advocate, you could also argue that uh, you know you should know there's unpredictable results and you know try to try to get off you know get a head start on those too. You know if you get a problem like a machine or a circuit and you know it performs worse over temperature based off you know your basic validation and you know couple months down the line, a problem arises. Yeah, go through and do your basic troubleshooting, but maybe take a spare unit, throw it in an oven, and see what happens there, too, trying to recreate the problem in parallel. Mm-hmm. You know, because nothing's worse, and, you know, at least in my experience, taking temperature measurements is a lot harder to get the experiment set up and run reliably in the oven, and then you have to, you know, wait till things get to temperature and soak and all that good stuff, and it just eats into a lot of time, and if you start them in parallel with your basics, you know, basic work you can uh save a lot of time yeah and maybe your your regimented would just say you know at this point start testing on two units one in temperature one on the bench in open air mm-hmm. yeah so you, you still have your intuition to go off and see what's what's crazy but you know you're also thinking ahead as well you're kind of hedging your bets yeah <laughs> and actually i can you can play a pretty good devil's advocate and say you know, there's a certain level of BS to this unpredictability of it. I mean, it's even in my own life, I've, I've, I find myself thinking, you know, my hand waving that somehow what I do is, you know, unique or 
evolved or informed mm-hmm. is just my own certain level of BS. <laughs> you know, it, I'm not, I don't think we're all that unique with respect to those things. I mean, yeah, you can be a bad debugger, but you know, I, I don't know. I like, che- I like the idea of checklists. I just think they're for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Well, so let me suggest something that we do have as engineers, many cases that is sort of a, uh, it's not a checklist, but I think serves a similar purpose and that's standards. And so when we want to do uh, serial bus, you know, or serial communications, we don't have to design all those details ourselves. We certainly turn around and say, well, what's the, uh, you know, what's the, the latest USB standard or or, yeah. you know, in the day yeah. it was the RS-232 or, you know, whatever. There's standards in, in virtually every engineering field to yeah, help the, unburden us from some of these details. Mm-hmm. We, we meet the 4.3 megahertz I squared C spec or whatever that one is, the ultra fast, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you Mechies meet the massless frictionless pulley spec of 2012 <laughs> or whatever, whatever yes. it is you guys have standards for. Yeah, we're, we're working on that. The massless frictionless pulley. We did yeah. an entire episode on screws. There are plenty of standards. <laughs> that is true, yeah. Yeah. So but but that is is I think uh one area where uh certainly it's best to if if there is an existing standard, don't try to rewrite the book. Yeah, I mean go with the standard, even if it's not perfect. Uh don't burden yourself with all those additional details. Yeah, if you if you don't have a good reason to. Uh, if that were true, we'd still be using COBOL. <laughs> <laughs> It's like that famous XKCD comic, you know, there's there's 14 standards out there, so we should unify them all, and then there's 15 standards. <laughs> well, now that Solid is a eight. whole, yeah, that is a whole issue unto itself, is is when there's multiple standards, knowing which one to rely on. Mm-hmm. But but in any case, what you're what you are doing is saying, hey, I'm going to rely on the standards and the standard board, you know, whoever put it together to take care of these details, so I don't, I personally don't have to take care of it myself or, or our company does not have to worry about these, these small details. Yeah. So Brian, you were talking earlier about when you're trying to make decisions, you know, these small detailed decisions, and you said that you couldn't do it through a binary search. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's a lie, but yeah, <laughs> but, but, but one of the things that is, at least in the in the design phase, I'm trying to think in in other aspects. But I think most engineers at some point do something where they're doing some rearranging of things that involves some some design elements. There are just uh, each detail ha- can control so much. You know, you you find a new a new widget that does has functionality you didn't expect, and all of a sudden you can do new things with your product, or you find a uh, you know a part that's limited in its. Uh, it costs too much. And now all of a sudden it, it affects your bill of materials. And now you have to, you know, redo everything in order to meet your cost specification. And so I'm just curious. I don't, I personally don't know any better, better way than to try, just try to keep an open mind. Don't draw conclusions very soon, but, but early in the design process, I'm going looking for as much information as I can. Can I go this way? Can I go that way? But the process of searching the design space seems really slow to me. And and I'm limited in time, and all of a sudden my my day or my week or my month of allocated time to search the design space is gone, and I have to pick something that always seems suboptimal, but it's the best I have at the time. Do you guys have any techniques for for more quickly getting through all the you know the 
permutations and all the possible combinations of, of details that might arrive in a final design? Yeah, I, I mean, my way of going about that is to make sure I'm never checkmated by something that I can't solve. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I never want to. It's it's a little bit like uh, single search in parts, mm-hmm. um, except it's with ideas. <laughs> so I, I won't go down. A, I will not go down a path that I if I do I, that I do not have a fallback option for. Mm-hmm. Like if this doesn't work, what's the next thing? And I may partially develop that in my head, you know, maybe 10, 20%. Okay. That's what this would look like. If, you know, if, if, if I can't do that particular signal analysis with a, um, with a micro, like an ST32 micro, I can switch to an FPGA, you know, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'll kind of then lay out for everyone around me. Like these are the kind of escalation curves for both cost and complexity and, you know, <laughs> and so I don't, I don't necessarily, I, I, it's usually pretty obvious to me what, uh, what my solution space looks like. It's just whether that solution space actually works, mm-hmm. I think ends up being the biggest question. Okay. And the biggest unknown. So when I do design work, it's not unusual for me to run into the case where I'll spend a good amount of time going down one path. And then mm-hmm. somehow I come across a, an article, a note, a picture, something that reminds me of some, it just, it, it triggers something in my brain that I can do. I can do this in a different way and I'll go look at that different way. And usually it's no better or, or it's, it's not significantly better. But about, you know, one time in 10, about one time in 20, I find something that's remarkably better. And so I find myself when I'm, I'm in, this fa- in this design phase of looking for possibilities of being reluctant to put down the search. Because I'm always thinking that if I, just, if I just spend another hour, I spend another day, I spend another week, that serendipity will shine on me and I will, I will find that better solution. Do you, do you guys experience this or, or are you pretty lucky in that? the direction you're going is the direction you're going and and there's no not too much worry about uh, alternate paths i'm pretty lucky that there there's not too many alternate paths i could go down because the chips i design and work with are for a very niche application mm-hmm. um, if i was doing general purpose you know switching regulators then yeah i would have a lot more options available to me but you know with intel setting the specs we have to meet and you know keeping in mind that all, all these parts that I'm working on are going to go into something like a, an ultrabook or a tablet. You know, that's, it's a very space constrained application. So if a vendor comes to me and says, Hey, we got these great new inductors, you know, they are, uh, you know, 10 millimeters by 10 millimeters by five millimeters high. I can go, cool. No one's going to buy those. Next question. <laughs> um, what else you got? Uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm constrained in a somewhat good way that way and that you know when i start doing a new design there's only so many different paths it could take mm-hmm. um now i i'm also in the benefit of just you know working with the chip so my job is to make the chip look as good as it can so i can maybe be on the upper end of what a customer might do you know it's supposed to be somewhat realistic but if I use the best inductor I can find, then I can say this is the performance we'll guarantee with the proper parts. If you, you know, if you have to use a cheaper inductor, things may be different. 
Right. And it's still my job to know what that is. But when I'm designing for the eval board, it's, you know, the showcase to make our part look as good as it is. So that's my goal. I will use the better inductor every time. Right. (laughs) I've been in the case where um, when I was working with lasers a lot more, we hit a wall where the system we were designing, the beam path, produced some highly non-desirable side effects. The sharks you were putting the lasers on started eating people? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um I was actually having this conversation earlier about how glass, they're all dielectrics reflect a certain amount no matter what you do. Every dielectric transition, it's actually mm-hmm. a great example of maximum power transfer. Um, and we had a customer that basically said, you know, they were ordering two machines and one of them had to be ready to go prime time at this date no matter what this had to be solved or we're going to start hitting you with penalties. So we had two machines. We, we developed two totally different ways to solve the problem Mm -hmm. on as a means to mitigate the risk of, well, what if our, what if our reduce solution doesn't work? Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's again, going down my strategy of having backups and contingencies. We lucked out in that both of them worked. Right. <laughs> and two machines to do the exact same thing looked different. <laughs> Had two totally different burnt beam paths. But uh Yeah, that's a nice that's a nice uh situation to find yourself in to have two equally valid solutions. Uh, I guess if if all things being equal, it could have equally turned out that I had two non-functional machines. <laughs> and I had doubled the uh, amount of money I wasted. Right. But if you don't try, you're never going to succeed right yeah so uh, you know i don't necessarily find i you know to your point earlier about you know looking for the unicorn solution <laughs> right i i think that's why i i troll hackaday i troll all sorts of various technology form, forms and i'm always kind of filing things away mm-hmm. you know i don't know when i'm going to need to know that this exists but you know I'm glad I do. And I feel like that's been really advantageous in my career that I I can't tell you how many times I've I've been in a situation where I have a problem or I need a solution and I can go, I know Avago has this kind of weird part, Mm -hmm. you know, or I I know that I can get, you know, I know I can use like right now I'm using raspberry Pis as test PLCs. You know, I, I, I don't know how the heck I found that out, but I remember reading somewhere that, you know, hey, you can do Ethernet IP with a, you know, the Raspberry Pi. Yeah. And that ended up being super useful and super cheap way to test things. Mm-hmm. And and so these details that you come across, are they, uh, I mean, are you the type that, that uh, cross-references them and, and writes them down on uh, note cards or, or files them away in a database? Or is this all sitting in your brain and, and just... Uh, sloshes around with you it sloshes around with the whiskey (laughs) okay yeah it's a bit of an obsession you know i go at home at night and basically just read about technology which is probably (laughs) it's probably pathological at some level right i'm sure it makes you the life of the party (laughs) but oh yeah (laughs) 
because yeah, I, I try not to talk with about engineering with non-engineers. Yeah. I've learned they don't care. My wife has told me many times she does not care. <laughs> right. Right. Well, so if, uh, if you are not, so, so your inspirations, perhaps you're not writing down. What about the details that you make during the process of a design or the process of, of improving a process? Do you mean, do I take notes? Well, no, I mean, so if you're, uh, for me, if I choose a certain bolt size, or you might choose a certain, you know, component for your printed circuit board, or somebody else, you know, uh, uh, car. Uh, sorry, Adam, who's not with us this evening, may choose a certain asphalt mixture, or a chemical engineer may, you know, choose a certain pump size. I don't know, but you make that decision. Whatever chemical engineers do, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Unfortunately, we 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 need more chemical engineers. So, if our listening audience knows of a chemical engineer who'd be willing to be a guest on the show, we'd love to have them on. I got a new strategy. We can just make up ridiculous things that chemical engineers do until we have somebody come on here and correct us. Oh, there you go. So when the chemical engineers are paying the elves to solve their problems. <laughs> right. Um, th- so they, they make a decision. We, we all as engineers have to make design decisions or process decisions. And so we write down, you know, use this resistor, use this nut, use this bolt, use this asphalt, whatever it is. How much documentation do you attach to that decision? You know, the condition, why you pick that asphalt, why you pick that component. Because you could spend a lot of time writing up all the constraints and all the reasons and all the people involved. But isn't it important to have some documentation about your design decisions? Absolutely. It's directly proportional to the amount of money you're about to spend or how likely you are to get fired. (laughs) Okay. Or how much the elves cost in the... Chemical engineers, problem-solving strategy. Right. So if it is uh, the choice between two bolts that cost a penny difference, that's that's not Are they they holding up a sign or are they holding up the bridge that's going to kill people? Yeah. So that's what I was getting to is that it's not just the cost of the item itself, but it's the the result. So if if that penny more or penny less bolt fails and now you cause the sign to fall off, you know, you may be talking about damages in hundreds or thousands of dollars. If you, if it's a bridge that collapses and lives are lost, then you're into the priceless category. You can't, you can't get those lives back. Yeah. How much is sleeping the rest of my life worth to me? Right. Of course, that's, that's a, uh, that's an entire process unto itself to figuring out what, all the ways in which a uh, a system or a product can fail. Mm-hmm. And, and Jeff, to the to your point, you know, trying to document all those details, it, that, that's when you start having levels of documentation. You know, maybe in the bill of materials, you just spec get this bolt. You know, quick description. You know, this thread count, this length, this uh, you know screw type, Phillips flathead posi drive, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here's the McMaster car part number, you know, go to town, get a box of a hundred, you know, that that's not the the time or the place to write down, you know, your poetry about why you picked that bolt. Um, You know, in the, the robot database or, you know, data sheet or whatever it is you're writing for the customer, you know, maybe you get into some detail, like, you know, this is why these motors were used. You know, you can swap them out with motors that meet this criteria. 
Okay. And then you'd have, you know, your application notes, your white papers, your whatever on this is how you go about choosing a motor and it gets a little more abstract. Mm -hmm. So that way, that way you're not constraining your customer or overwhelming them. You know, if every bomb had to have a paragraph on why each component was picked, well, you know, then the vendors who are building the, assembling the boards aren't going to ever get through it. No one who's trying to recreate it is ever going to look through it and get what they need to out of it. Um, you have to know when to stick the details in. Yeah. Kind of an art, art to it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, and that's, that's sort of the, uh, the trade-off, right? As, as you add the more details of the details, the meta details. Jeez. <laughs> so people say we, we, we want more documentation. We want to be more detailed, but as you add more details, people's uh, ability to pay attention to that starts to fade and and mm-hmm. no matter how much uh, how much detail you provide them, they they suddenly fade out. They only hear some of the highlights, and and uh, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, the the reality is usually these details are not seen by anybody else, right? Whatever we yeah. do at the bolt and component level is is a thing of beauty to us, perhaps. But for the most part, people using the products or devices or systems we design, uh, they don't care too much. Yeah, as long as it works. Yeah, your your vendor may or may not care who's building whatever it is, you know, or your production guys might care because it's a pain in the ass or a lot easier to them. But once you get more than a level or two above or below you, they don't really care. <laughs> yeah. The guy at McMaster doesn't care that you found the new way to save two bolts and, you know, not re- reduce your safety factor. <laughs> He's just going to put the bolts in the box and send them to you. Right. So, so Jeff, how do you balance as a, a teacher jumping around a little bit here? Um, you know, you, you got to teach your kids or your kids, your, your aspiring <laughs> engineers, you're not like an elementary school teacher here. No. Uh, you got to teach your students, you know, th- this is thermodynamics, you know, this is how heat flows, you know, from hot to cold and, you know, all that good jazz, whatever it is you Mechies do. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, so, so you have a certain way you have to it, teach. It, it, it doesn't involve elves though. I'll point that out. That is true. We leave that for the civil and the chemical guys. <laughs> Until they come on here to say otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Come on and set the record straight. Exactly. But yeah, so you have a way, you know, whether it's the method the book is teaching or the method that you like, um, you know, you have your way that you have to get across to the students. This is a way to solve a problem. But a lot of what we've been talking about is how all of us engineers are special snowflakes and you can't put us in a box. Checklists are for other people. Um, how, How do you walk the line between getting your students to, you know, just go through the steps to learn how to do it and yet kind of explore their own method. Is that a well-designed lab? Is that open-ended homework questions on top of the, the drill problems? Well, at least for me, that's a, that's a huge issue in that, you know, with, with 88 students in the section, it's really tough to spend any, you know, one-on-one time. Okay. Say say it's a, a graduate elective or something where you can yeah. well s- still the problem is that that the assumption is made that here's the material and and the student will study it and figure out a way to understand it and i'm not sitting there and saying tell me exactly how you perceive the algebraic components or elements of this problem mm-hmm. uh, describe to me how you deal with uh, integration limits uh, the assumption is made that that previous class work and previous courses have prepared them to do this. And that if they're, if they're getting it wrong, then they'll, they'll have trouble with the tests or the exams and that will get them 
that'll make corrections to get them back on the right track. And so generally it works, you know, the big picture, it works. But often when students come in and want to go through a homework problem and I try to guide them through, you know, without giving them the answer, guide them through how you get from, you know, step A, step B, step C, that sort of thing. Oftentimes they're just the, the, and we're all, I think many of us are like this, but they just want, they just want the solution. It's like, well, give me the, give me the equation by which I can solve it. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. just tell me what the equation is and I'll plug and chug and then I'll be happy. You'll, I'll have an answer. You'll be happy. All will be great with the world. And so when I challenge students to think about it, well, you know, based on what we've discussed in class or based on what you should know from previous coursework, how would you develop that? What, what is the implication of, of, these, of these theorems and these laws that we've, we've been learning? And so that part is really, it, it, it's tough to teach, I think. It took me a career. I mean, it, certainly when I got out as an undergrad, I didn't, you know, I had lots, I'd solved lots of problems, but I really didn't understand how to apply a lot of this. And so uh, those, those types of issues, that type of understanding is something that, that I try real hard in the, in my lectures and my classroom instruction to convey and to get students to think about, but it's tough if you're not, if you're not speaking with someone on a one-to-one basis. Mm -hmm. And like this past summer, I had a very small class. I had 18 students and that was wonderful. You know, I could actually talk with uh, these students would, you know, in, in groups of two or three, and, and we'd work through homework problems. And that was great because I could, you know, any misconceptions I could clear up right away. But but as you deal with uh, bigger and bigger groups, it's just harder, you know, that type of one-on-one discussion doesn't scale very well. And so, you know, you, you turn to teaching assistants to try to help out. You 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 rely on, on uh, students working together and sharing with one another to to explain the, you know the important issues and work through things but it's it, it's an issue and, I, and so I don't know I don't know how to teach the details other than I mean I, I don't know how to try to explain to somebody how to think through the details other than I think we're all different we have to learn on our own anyway so maybe that's <laughs> maybe hands off is best maybe I shouldn't try to get in the middle of of a person's development and discovery of their own thinking procedures Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a, a tricky balancing act. Yeah. So one of the things that I've I've discovered when I'm I'm going through these processes is that each detail starts to constrain the direction of the problem I'm trying to solve. And so when you start, you sit down with a, a well, we, you know, white paper uh, design, and there's nothing on the paper. Anything is possible. And with each decision you make, you know, I'm going to use this motor. I'm going to use this voltage. I'm going to use this pump. You constrain uh, what's going on, and those decisions eliminate variability in your design. They they narrow the path, which allows you to finally get to a end path. But do you do you have any thoughts about how you go through the process of not picking, you know, uh, not picking a design detail too early? Uh, I guess in the software field, it's known as premature optimization. You know, trying to optimize your code before you've really gotten uh, the entire problem sort of fleshed out and solved uh yeah yeah i guess um using a specific example from my line of work um the number of capacitors on an output uh filter it's always mm-hmm. the parameter that every customer whether you know they have a big budget small budget whatever they always want the minimum number of capacitors 
um, you know, dancing on the bleeding edge of failing the spec, then maybe add one, two more for margin and call it a day. Um, mm-hmm. But when they start their designs, trying to explain to them like, well, just start with a solution that works because, you know, once you find a, uh, you know, a compensation scheme for the amplifiers and everything to get a, a nice stable solution with a, a good looking, nice square transient response with no real overshoot, undershoot, ringing, all that jazz, um, you know. Those compensation values will work for a reasonable range of caps and, you know, you can start with more cap than you need and peel off a couple and see where your limits are, then change the compensation a bit to re-optimize instead of trying to keep both knobs going at once, you know, change the compensation and pull off caps at the same time just gets to be too, too crazy and too many details. You're, you're fighting a battle against yourself there. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I guess it's similar to uh, the software thing, premature optimization. Yeah, well, it, it is sort of a, a a balance in there, and I'm not, I don't, you know, other than trial and error, I don't have a good suggestion about how to go about it. But you know, the the details, the the decision, uh, the design decisions we make, the small details, each one can affect other details, right? And so, at any one point, you know, making it making a change in that detail may change the the entire the entire scope of the problem that you're dealing with. And so if if you're if you're lucky you find you find you know a new component, a new part, a new method, a new procedure that opens up a whole host of new product ideas or process ideas. Uh, but sometimes you also come across a detail that limits what you want to do and sort of closes everything down. So is no no advice on how to go about keeping your options open other than Brian's of, of making sure you always have a plan B? Well, when I'm doing really complex hardware, I also try to modularize it significantly more than the final packaging will require Mm -hmm. so that I can selectively spin various pieces of it without having to rebuild the entire thing. So if I've got, if I've got a, system that has a micro and let's say four or five different kind of voltage sensing circuits you know i might put all of those on little header circuits that go on to, onto a you know kind of a motherboard type device right. that would allow me to say spin type two but leave everything else the same mm-hmm. and continue development on everything else you know and that that kind of leaves it open both, you know, how I'm ultimately going to package everything in the allotted space, but also it doesn't constrain me to respinning like six and even more layer boards, you know, every single time I want to try a new circuit. Mm-hmm. Something that would be very difficult to sell to, you know, my management is really easy to sell. Hey, I'm going to cut another you know, $20 board here to try out this new circuit. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that uh, the three of us may need to be careful about or cognizant of is that, that in our design work, we're often working very much by ourselves that, that we, we have a lot of control over the designs that we're working on. And if we're working, uh, if we're working with large groups, that is the, the sc- scope of the project is bigger. And so it's not something that, uh, you know, for me, I could do, I could work on the design of a single machine, or I get the sense that that 
the two of you were able many times to work on a single printed circuit board where you're sort of the master of, of that domain. Uh, but if you're building a rocket ship or you're building a, uh, you know, a, a transportation system or something that's very large, then the details have to get sorted out and coordinated amongst many, many people. And so uh, the word you said, uh, Brian, was modular, modular, I can't even modularize. say modularize. modularize. So there should be a zation in there, right? Modularization. It's the I. Modularization. Is that a word? Potentially. <laughs> it is now. It is now. All right. So when you modularize, what I've read about, and I, I just haven't worked in that many huge design projects, but the point is you don't try to coordinate the details across all the groups. I mean, you set some standards, but the idea is you hit interface points and you say, okay, at this point, you know, team A is going to match up with team B. And all you, all you do is worry about making sure the details, you know, the, the bolts and the alignment and the pattern and the, the electrical specs and whatever, you know, match at the interface point. And you don't try to micromanage and to control all the details in, you know, section A, section B, section C, that sort of thing. I still like Brian's idea. You know, if you're just, just have a plan B. So if you're building the road to uh, Chicago, build a subway underneath in case the road doesn't work out. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, actually, that works. Yeah. Or string a zip line up above, you know, then it's, yeah, that's cheaper than a subway. Now you're optimizing for costs. <laughs> <laughs> Ski lifts, you know, whatever, alongside the road. Just, just have a backup plan. Catapult. There we go. Fastest way between any two points is always a catapult. Yeah. So the other thing about working in large groups, and then I, again, I have not uh, had to do a lot of, and I, so I don't know what your experience might be, but I, I know there are, you know, at big corporations, they have big software packages to take care of a, lot, of a lot of this documentation. And so, you know, everything about a product is stored in some sort of database and, and uh, you know, design specs are stored there and, and the drawings are stored there. Does that help? Have you, got, do you, have you uh, guys had any interaction with that or, or those types of systems? Uh, yeah, we have a, a shared drive with all the archived PCBs, you know, from uh, years past. And it, mm-hmm. that's always helpful when you can say, oh, yeah, we did lay this circuit out once before. Or like, let's go see how we used to do it and then, you know, change whatever needs to be changed. Um, being able to go back and see all that's been a big help, you know, for certain projects. Mm-hmm. I've worked at a, I've worked at places that have giant revision management soft, like you know, almost like ERP software packages that handle that. That that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So what yeah. was what was your experience with that? Uh, I think the learning curve was steep, but it, it was yeah. it's powerful. It's powerful to, to really be able to search designs and not just be navigating through a bunch of miscellaneous folders on a network. Right. I don't know. Did you have a positive experience? I've not really had to work with anything like that. Most of the, you know, I've worked with mostly either in smaller design groups within bigger organizations or or small companies that didn't you know couldn't afford the uh, this you know these big software packages. Uh, so I I haven't had much experience. I'd I'd be more interested in, in what you found. I will say that uh, it is maybe, uh, I was going to say reassuring, but actually I want to make it take that a little bit darker. It is, uh, it's a nice little security blanket, you know, when whenever you have to do a revision on something and you have to get electronic signatures for a whole bunch of 
for the changes that you make. Mm-hmm. And so it's there's an implicit buy-in required by the organization for you to do anything. Whereas, you know, I've worked at other places where you could do a print and maybe somebody might not even look at it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, and it's, it's all on you to make sure that it works. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty sweet. Okay. Okay. Well, the, the vendors of those systems will be very pleased to hear you say that. But it's, but it's like all revision. Like we use Git a lot now. Yeah. And I would also say that's only as powerful as the, uh, your documentation of what you commit. Sure. You know, I try to do as, even for my own benefit, try to do as much explanation of each revision, you know, above and beyond what's probably even more than what's commented in the code. Cause I can add more, maybe, uh, context to temporal context. I don't, I typically don't like when my code would reflect that I changed this function to this and then back to the back again. Cause it was a bad idea. I wouldn't put that in the comments, but I'll put that in my, my change notifications uh, or the, in the documentation for my change records. So Git and, and other type of revision control systems seem to have a lot of benefit for engineers. But one of the limitations, at least in my mind, was that they don't work particularly well for binary data uh, because it's, it's much more difficult to do a, uh, uh, you know, a, yeah, it's not ASCII code. Yeah. It's not ASCII code. So it's, it's difficult to do like a comparison of, of uh, revision a against revision B to find the differences it's tough when you're you're saying two two photographs of the same location. Well, I mean, even in uh, you know the big expensive change management systems that I've seen. Yeah, if you're talking drawings, uh, at least as far as I'm aware, there's nothing implicit in the system that's going to force you to document. You know, I changed this particular print. Yeah, it's you can open up both files, and it's incumbent upon you to see the difference or hope to God that the person who made the modification, you know, put some sticky notes or something about what they did. (laughs) They redlined a drawing. Right. Um, So, so is Git good enough for a lot of, so I, you know, the software community definitely knows about Git and those type of software uh, revision packages. And I've encouraged uh, even mechanical engineers, you know, doing, doing designs just to, to do it. So they have some, you know, some past storage of their designs and they're not searching through their, you know, clicking through folders, trying to find which design they did 16 months ago. So you're actually storing binaries in a Git? Yeah, because at least there you have, you, you'll have some sort of commit message. In addition to, if you're, if you're dealing with your folder, you, you don't even have that. If you're just storing drawing, uh, drawings into a folder. I got to admit, I've, I've wondered how effective that would be. Like, I, I just would – I worry that's, that there's some sort of structure change – that there's a change management structure built into the binary that by, you know, pulling a previous revision out, it would desync with everything else, like the log files that are there. Yeah, and that and that's the – I mean, that's the other thing is Git is really tailored to, you know, checking the differences and only storing the differences. And so you don't get any of that kind of – uh, advantage of of reducing the storage size uh, because you've only changed one line in in two pieces of code. 
Well, I mean, then uh, the storage size is not a big would not be a big concern. I, I'm inter- I'm interested that people are doing that. I've never tried it. I've often thought as I've been, you know, creating subfolder and subfolder for board <laughs> board drawings. Okay, that wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if there were another way to do this? Like if I was if I was to put a whole bunch of files that are art that are attached to an Altium project mm-hmm. in the Git. I wonder what would happen if I, you know, reverted them to a previous revision. That's an interesting question. I'm sure Git could handle it. Maybe Altium could. Well, I'm sure somewhere out in our listening audience, there's somebody who knows the answer to this. Yeah. <laughs> And it, yes. if you're Fine. willing to spend an hour and a half in, in some evening and, and come on and join us, let us know. That'd be uh, an interesting thing to talk about. I've also heard that chemical engineers use Git for their recipes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's only when they're cooking something for their elves, right? Yes. <laughs> All right, guys. You want to keep this one short and sweet this week? I like that idea. All right. I don't see any reason to talk everyone's ear off here for no good reason. So we'll uh, we'll come back. What do you say? In a couple of weeks? Yeah, I guess I can pencil you guys in. <laughs> same bad time, same bad channel. That sounds like a plan. Giddy up. <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. All right, see you guys later. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.